Hello, sunshine. Hello, sunshine. Hello, sunshine. Gotta make hay while the sun shines. What's this? This is Hello, Sunshine. What if by sharing our stories, we could change the world? Welcome to Hello, Sunshine. I'm Diane Guerrero, and this is How It Is, the show where women tell their own stories in their own words. We're unfiltered, real, and totally ourselves. Today, we are getting down to business. Most of us know what it's like to work. But what does work mean to us? You're a queen. Good morning, or evening, or whatever time it is for you. Maybe you're getting ready for work, heading home, taking your break. Maybe you're at home, parenting your children. Maybe you're sending out resumes. Maybe you're loading the dishwasher for the 10th time today. Maybe you are pursuing your passion. This episode goes out to all you working women, which is all of us. I work all the time. I think everything is work. Honey, getting up in the morning is work. But I don't have any negative connotation with work. I know it takes work to build a relationship. I know it takes work to be happy. I know it takes work to care for yourself and love yourself. So work isn't only what you do to make money. But that's just how I define it. Right now, 57% of women in the United States are doing paid work, compared to about 43% back in 1970. Penelope. No, since I'm obviously not appreciated around here, I am going to cut my salary by 100%. I think she's trying to say she's quitting. Shut up, Scott! (laughs) But yes, I quit. We are consistently paid 20% less than men over our lifetimes, but still we contribute over $7.6 trillion every year year to the United States GDP. That's wild. Today you'll hear from three fantastic women, comedian Maysoon Zayed, activist Cecile Richards, and blacksmith Willow Zeitman. They are talking about what work is to them, about having a life's work, and about how work can help define who you are. So first up, Maysoon Zayed. She's a Palestinian-American comedian. She's an actress, an advocate, and a total Jersey girl. She also runs the only annual Arab-American comedy festival in existence. Maybe you saw her viral TED Talk about living with cerebral palsy. It's called, I Got 99 Problems, Palsy is Just One. If, if there was an oppression Olympics, I would win the gold medal. I'm Palestinian, Muslim, I'm female, I'm disabled, and I live in New Jersey. (laughs) If you don't feel better about yourself, maybe you should. (laughs) For Maysoon, her work is making people laugh. She has an incredible work ethic that she says she got from her parents. My parents are such an interesting mix. My mom looks like Julia Roberts and my dad looks like Saddam Hussein. And 
my dad, he was the kind of dad you wanted. Biggest cheerleader, no fear, fun, loved to take us on vacations, loved to party. And my mom was something very far beyond a tiger mom. She made me do everything that my sisters did. And I think that's so important for who I became. She never gave me breaks. If my sisters were cleaning, I was cleaning. The first time I ever pulled the disability card, I was like, mother, I cannot clean. I am differently abled. And she put a towel under my butt and had me scoot on the kitchen floor. And that kind of aggressiveness and that you must succeed, I really think that they're partially responsible for me being able to get where I got because I faced so much rejection battling being an intersectional multiple minority in Hollywood that if I hadn't been raised by the toughest mother you could ever imagine, I don't think I would have ever survived a day in Hollywood. I grew up in Jersey, and every summer my friends would go to the shore and my parents would send me to a war because my dad would send me and my three older sisters back to Palestine every single summer because he was afraid that if we didn't go, we would forget our roots. My very first memories were the fear of having to cross the Israeli border into Palestine. Even when I was a very, very small child, Palestinians are treated differently. Even if you're an American citizen, the American citizen part of you is ignored. I still go every summer. I still film in Palestine because I think it's important for people to see what I describe to them when I talk about my summers in Palestine. We only see destruction and catastrophe. I go there and I show them pizza shops and olive groves and the other side of the world. That's not all death and destruction. That shows the humanity. When you work for yourself, I think we constantly have to step back and be like, am I working nonstop or has my work become my life? My life's work is very clearly defined. I want to mainstream disability in media because I believe that if you can't see it, you can't be it. So people with disabilities are 20% of the population. One in three American households has a disabled person in it. We're the largest minority in the world, and we're by far the most underrepresented on television. So even though we're 20% of the population, we're only 2% of the images you see on TV. And of those 2%, 95% are played by non-disabled actors. You know, the disability community is not a monolith, but those of us in advocacy really feel that visible disability like race cannot be played and that the depictions we see are inauthentic, they're cartoonish, and they're offensive. People with disabilities face an enormous amount of violence. And I feel like if we had more positive images on TV, the fear and the stigma would be less. I don't think that fear drives my comedy. I think that anger drives my comedy. I did this TED Talk in 2014, and it was so interesting because people ask me what it's about, and I say, I don't know. I was just talking. I have no idea. But what happened was everybody heard what they wanted to hear. 
So Muslim women were like, wow, how refreshing to hear a Muslim woman voice and not have it framed patriarchally, not have it framed as oppressed, to hear a loud, proud Muslim woman. And then people with disabilities were like, I'm so excited that you weren't inspirational and that you shunned the idea of inspiration porn and that you mainstreamed us. And then I had people who said the most vile, dangerous things to me and called me everything from an honor killing gone wrong to a Gumby Mouth terrorist whore that they should pray with. And it really made me step back and say, the people who need me far outweigh the people who hate me. And I love the fact that I can make people's lives better by telling jokes. It's not like pouring concrete. It's not like doing heart surgery. I can't kill anyone, but I can save someone. I don't use my comedy to advocate, but my mere presence on stage is advocacy. Sometimes I'm the first functional disabled person that the audience member has ever seen. Sometimes I'm the first Muslim that the audience member has ever not feared. Sometimes they think I'm the lost Kardashian because I do look like Kim Kardashian. <laughs> I have incredible, incredible hair. Say it again for the people in the back. Representation matters. As Maysoon says, if you can't see it, you can't be it. I believe that so fully. When was the last time you made something with your hands? Like, you truly made something from nothing, and the end result was useful to yourself and others. Like my dad. He worked at the Green Rubber Company in Massachusetts, making rubber for decades. And my mom did everything from cleaning houses to working in a candy factory. My dad would always say, you want to be a profesional, not like me. He wouldn't even let me near the stove. He'd say, you're not going to be a woman in the kitchen. And that I needed to value myself and work for myself. But sometimes, working over a hot stove, um, like, a really, really, really hot stove is actually how a woman can express her feminism and femininity. Our next story comes from Willow Zeitman, who does this every day. She is a blacksmith. That's right, you heard me. She works with iron and steel and teaches people how to create using this craft. Her love for her work runs deep. One balmy summer evening, when I was 14, my parents came home to find me in front of a fire, bent over a hot piece of metal, beating it with a hammer. I had just visited a blacksmith's shop in Rowley, Massachusetts for the first time, and I had been bitten by the blacksmithing bug. Blacksmithing is some serious magic. We may understand it scientifically, but when you see the four elements coming together at the anvil, earth is the iron, air from the bellows, fire in the forge, and water to quench the peace, it gives you the shivers. 
It's the magic that built the tools that built our whole lives. If that's not magic, I don't know what is. I suppose it's no wonder that I ended up falling into blacksmithing. I'm from Salem, Massachusetts, a city with a wonderful combination of 1630s and witch hunt reenactors and a thriving urban immigrant farming community. Raising chickens, ducks, turkeys, and geese since age seven, visiting Bartolomeo, the horse that pulled the local tourist carriages, grazing in my uncle's lawn, and visiting the Pioneer Village reenactment site, I wasn't surprised when Burton Sargent, the blacksmith there, put an ad for an apprentice in the paper. I jumped at the chance and soon began visiting his 17th century style shop every Saturday to make nails and coat hooks and toasting forks. I pumped the massive bellows, swung a big hammer, and chatted nonstop with the bearded, kind-hearted giant that was Bert. He was a man of many contradictions, a devout Methodist covered in tattoos of toucans and mandalas, a motorcycle-riding 17th-century blacksmith. I loved it. I really did. But as I grew, I found my love transforming into something more sinister. See, I was assigned male at birth, but all through my childhood, I learned that if I acted like myself, then I would get called a faggot and be kicked around the playground. I'd been girly for years, and here was a ready-made excuse for me to do something badass while being able to use it to hide myself in a gendered cloak. And you know what? It worked. Even though I tended to squeak when happy and skip from place to place, there was no doubt in anyone's mind that I was manly when I said I was a blacksmith. But over time, it became less about love of the craft and more about hiding who I was. When I started to come out at 19, everything backfired. Now the passion that helped define me as male confused people. But are you sure? I mean, you're a blacksmith, was as common a response as, oh, now you make sense. As a woman, I get surprised looks whenever I tell people that I'm a blacksmith. When I come out as trans, the confused stares intensify. When I walk up to my students on the first day of a blacksmithing class, I often get these stunned looks. Wait, you're the teacher? Is something I hear far too often. What we've forgotten as a culture is that women and girls, as far back as the 14th century, have been granted entry into the trade through paternity, marriage, or apprenticeship. An able body in a business was an able body regardless of sex. And yet, working with our hands isn't something that we're encouraged to do anymore. But there's power in making. King Arthur named the blacksmith the king of craftsmen because we make our own tools and those of others. As my friend Carl West says, we smith up. If something needs changing, we change it. If you need the tools, you can make them. Even if someone is an accountant, knowing that you have the skills to change the world around you on a physical level is power. 
But still, despite all this, I downplayed my blacksmithing history for years. Blacksmithing was for men, I thought. So after I transitioned, I studied glassblowing, jewelry making, more supposedly feminine crafts. But still, I had an innate love of ironwork, and iron was still in my blood. I finally took up the hammer again, when my mentor, Bert, called me up out of the blue. I hadn't gotten in touch with him since my transition, out of fear of rejection. I didn't know how his faith might affect how he viewed me. But I was surprised and delighted to find him completely overjoyed. We met up at a party at my parents' house. When he saw me all decked out in my summer dress, he smiled broadly. Willow now? Wonderful, wonderful. We just hugged each other and cried. Somehow, his utter, unquestioning acceptance gave me the courage to return to a craft that I loved without worry about how I might be seen by others. If he, as a blacksmith, had no trouble with me being a woman, then neither did I. I used to use metalwork as a shield to hide behind, but now it's something that I can love openly and wholeheartedly. Women have been hammering hot iron for centuries, and I'm no exception. I wonder if it'd be okay for us non-blacksmiths to borrow that motto, Smith up. It's so good to remember that we do have strength. We do have the tools to change the world around us. I think that's going on a post-it on my fridge. I don't know about you, but I've had jobs that were just clock in, clock out. My very first job was at a discount women's clothing store called Frugal Fannies. Frugal Fannies, guys. I was folding lots of scarves. And since we're talking about work, I wanted to know where our storytellers got their start. My first job. My first job. My first job was. Was. Working at John Lewis, which is a department store in London, clearing away the dishes and plates in the restaurant. Landscaping at an organic landscaping. I folded boxes at Nordstrom's brass palm section. Was being a janitor with my parents in nightclubs in Boston. My first job was at the Highway 18 Cafe. Oh, my first job was at the, like a Woolworth, like a five and dime, and I made keys. I worked in the hardware department, and I loved making keys. <laughs> oh man, I love that. I love that she loved making keys. I, I also worked at a, at a iParty. It was like a balloon store, and I love making balloons. I love hearing these stories of how women started out in the workforce and then learning how they've been able to create a life's work from that humble beginning. Cecile Richards is someone who has built a life's work based around the basic premise that she wants to make people's lives better. And she has as an organizer, a nonprofit leader, and of course, as the former president of Planned Parenthood. 
Under her leadership, Planned Parenthood grew to over 10 million individual supporters. Last year, 2.4 million patients were seen by Planned Parenthood providers, receiving 9.4 million services, ranging from cancer screenings to pap smears. She is a huge inspiration to me, so I wanted to find out who inspired her. People say all the time, well, what was it like having Ann Richards as a mom? And of course, for the most of my life, she was just my mom. She wasn't this feminist icon. But what I think about now and I think, what would Ann Richards say or how would she feel? I think she would feel so inspired and energized by the number of women now who are just not waiting to be asked, not waiting till they're perfect, till their resume is completely filled in, till the kids are the right age and all the reasons why women put off doing what they're meant to do. She just would say, you know, you've got to start before you're ready and support other women doing what they're meant to do. And I think right now we're seeing that in this country in a way we haven't seen in my lifetime. I was sort of born under a lucky star because I was born in Waco, Texas, to parents who were just total rabble-rousers. My dad was a civil rights attorney. He still is. And my mother at the time was really what we called a housewife, but she was into every movement that was coming through Texas. I mean, the farm workers, the labor movement, the civil rights movement. And so I just feel like at an early age, activism, it wasn't a burden. It was actually where all the cool people were. And, you know, our dinner table was never a place that we really focused on putting out a dinner spread. It was where you organized precinct lists for whatever campaign or issue that my parents were working on. So they had a huge influence on me. They were constantly challenging the status quo. My first real experience was when we um, went in seventh grade. It was the height of the Vietnam War, and my dad was defending uh, conscientious objectors to the war. There were students protesting. And so I wore a black armband to my um, school, which was outside of town, and I realized when I got on the school bus that morning that I was the only kid at Westlake Junior High that I knew that was wearing a black armband. And almost immediately, the principal called me to his office. It was scary, but it was also, it was kind of exhilarating. Of course, he tried to call my mother that day to rat me out, and it was his good fortune that she wasn't at home. But after that, I kind of, I thought, well, you know what? If just wearing a black armband to school actually gets the attention of the of the authorities, then I could probably do some other things too. And I think that really, in a way, got me started. When I got out of college, I had no idea what I was doing. Anyone who's looked at my career path, it's been pretty circuitous and certainly not purposeful, except that I always wanted to do something more than I was doing at the time. I went and learned Spanish first. I, I, I went to Guatemala, moved and lived with a little family and then so that I could work on the border. And I started working down in South Texas, I mean, the same area of the country that's being covered in the news nightly. Uh, I worked with garment workers, women who were making minimum wage, who really desperately needed, you know, a better job and a better life. Now, for the last 12 years working for Planned Parenthood, the, the through line to me has really been working with women lifting them up, I hope, giving them the power to tell their own stories, give them the health care that they need, give them the leadership opportunities so that they could actually change their own lives. I've always been fortunate in that I could choose what work I did, and a lot of people don't get to choose what they do for a living. And to me, work was always about something that 
made a difference in the world, made some kind of social change, progressive change, even if it was very, very tiny. I remember one time my mother said, you know, you can go a lot of places and you can make a lot of money or be a big deal, but you'll never have this kind of satisfaction uh, that you will if you have a have a job where people come to you and say, thanks for making my life better. You can't imagine the feeling when someone stops you on the street and says, you know, aren't you that lady from Planned Parenthood, and then tells you their story. Part of the joy of my work at Planned Parenthood was going and helping open new health centers. And I remember being in Plano, Texas. And a woman came up to me, and her name was Dana. She said, I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for Planned Parenthood. She was so moving. And of course, then later, I called Dana because I had to go testify before Congress. And I said, Dana, do you mind if I tell your story before this congressional committee? And she said, no, I, I, I would be so honored. Two weeks ago, I was in Plano, Texas, with one of these patients, Dana Ferris Fisher. And Dana can't be here today because she has a new job and she's supporting her family. But if she were here, Dana would tell you what she told me, that Planned Parenthood saved her life. In 2013, her husband lost his job and therefore their health insurance. And not long after, Dana found a lump in her breast. And the only two clinics that would take a patient without health insurance couldn't see her for at least two months. So Dana came to Planned Parenthood for a breast exam. And there, our clinician of 21 years, Vivian, guided her through the process of follow-ups and referrals and helped make sure that her treatment was covered. And she called Dana repeatedly to check on her as she entered treatment. And I am really happy to say today that Dana is now cancer-free. I've been doing social justice organizing work my whole life. There are things that you have that are temporary setbacks or you get involved in campaigns that seem completely impossible. And sometimes it takes years. Once I realized that everything wasn't going to change tomorrow, which is what I thought when I was young, but that eventually it would if we just never gave up, that, that gives you a lot of comfort. I just stepped down after 12 years at Planned Parenthood, which was the job of a lifetime. Very hard to leave that job. It, I mean, it's just such an incredibly important organization. But I also felt like it was important to make room for a next leader. And I think it's important that those of us who are in movement work, that we don't just talk the talk, but we walk the walk. So it's very strange to actually not have to suddenly make a million decisions every day about a big institution, but instead begin to, you know, build what I want to build. It's not fully formed, but I'm working with women now across the country on engaging them in voting and civic participation. I feel like women right now are the most important political force in the country. They're disrupting everything um, culturally, economically, politically. I think there's so much more that we agree on than we disagree on. And I'm trying to find that that space. I think that we're all on this earth for some purpose. And I feel really lucky that for the time I have, I've been able to do things that feel important to me and maybe just make a tiny, tiny drop in this bucket of, of change and progress. 
that I would ever think about. It would be the millions of young people who've joined Planned Parenthood for the time I was there, not because of anything it means about me, but because of what they're going to do to change the world. That feels really good. Well, Cecile, I have to say that you have been such a huge part in changing my life. I remember having nowhere to go because I didn't have any insurance and I needed, you know, I needed a gynecologist and I had questions about my sexuality and being able to go to Planned Parenthood and knowing that there was information there for me just changed my life. And I know so many people who have been touched by Planned Parenthood. So thank you. What about you? I want to know how this episode has inspired you to think about your work and your life's work. Tell us everything. Use the hashtag HowItIs. And please, if you're enjoying these conversations, head to Apple Podcasts and give us five stars and a review. It helps other wonderful people such as yourselves discover us. And now that you've heard how it is, visit hello-sunshine.com to read, learn, and get involved in the conversation. On this episode of How It Is, you heard from Maysoon Zaid, Willow Zeitman, and Cecile Richards. Thanks to our friends at Lean In for the statistics we used in this episode on women in the workforce. We're back next week to talk about something that, in my opinion, is just as important as work. Play! I'm Diane Guerrero, and I'm a badass queen, protector of justice, daughter of immigrants, change maker, and human lover. How It Is is a production of Hello Sunshine. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi, Charlotte Coe, Rebecca Lair, and Reese Weatherspoon. Our senior producers are Jillian Ferguson and Kara Hart. Our development producer is Mary Phillips Sandy. Sound designed by Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our theme song, Queen, is written and performed by Victoria Canal. Am I done? I don't want to work anymore. <laughs>